This episode of the CE Drive podcast is brought to you by Business Career College. Business Career College is a leading provider of financial services education, including the life insurance licensing program, the entire set of courses leading to the CFP certification, which is actually where I spend most of my time teaching and where I have met many of the participants in these podcasts. We also provide continuing education credits, live classroom and webinar instruction in support of the Elder Planning Counselor designation, and a few other odds and ends in support of folks in the financial services industry. You can find the full catalog of course offerings at www.businesscareercollege.com. Jason Watt. Thanks very much for joining us today. In this episode, we're going to hear from Ian, and we're going to talk about debt management and some of the issues that go along with that. This episode is approved for life insurance credits in the province of Alberta. No accident and sickness credits for this course. It does have a FP Canada financial planning credit as well. It's valid for life insurance credits in all other jurisdictions, just no accident and sickness credits in the province of Alberta. I'm in a little bit of a back and forth right now with the accreditation committee here in Alberta about whether or not the content in this is valid. If you happen to be out there somewhere listening to this and you know somebody on the accreditation committee or maybe even the Alberta Insurance Council and you just want to pass on to them your opinion, I don't want to flavor this, as to whether or not you think this is valid to make somebody more proficient at offering accident and sickness insurance products or servicing those products, I'd be interested, or you can email me and let me know if you think I'm wrong about this. I'm happy to hear it, or if you want to proffer your support, although I expect that it would be better to give that note to somebody at accreditation committee or at the Alberta Insurance Council. My email address is jason at businesscareercollege.com. The color for today's episode is green. The color for today's episode is green. Okay, once we hear from Ian, we're going to hear quite a bit of discussion around debt management. And I find this quite a useful topic. There's lots here. Ian deals with clients who are quite a bit different than the clients I deal with, but we both do a fair bit of work on the debt management side. And I'm going to talk about uh, some of the differences as we uh, touch on, for example, payday lending and uh, what I see from my clients versus what Ian sees from his. Before we get into the whole debt management discussion, I want to talk about something you've heard me talk about on this podcast before, and that is the value of specialization. Ian does have some specialization here, and it's actually kind of funny because I recently had breakfast with him. We recorded this summer of 2019. That's when we recorded the actual interview that goes along with this. When I first started working with Ian, he specialized quite a bit in this area of debt management. And then he got into the group benefits world and was sort of doing both of these things alongside one another. And when I recently met with Ian, for breakfast, he said he's in fact gone back to specializing in this area of personal finance and added a couple of things there, but really found that he was better off specializing. And I find that sometimes a hard lesson to learn. It can be tempting to go and try and do all things at all times. But you'll hear in the interview here that Ian does a really good job with this particular topic. And has done a good job of growing a very loyal and referring client base out of this. So I would encourage this, especially for a young advisor, and Ian is uh, fairly young to the business, it's a hard balance to strike, but if you can find that area to specialize in, get good at that, you'll find you attract clients who you're comfortable dealing with, and you can develop out a set of tools for dealing with those folks. Let's hear from Ian then, and we'll talk a little bit about some debt management concepts. Good morning, Ian. Thanks very much for joining us today. Good morning, Jason. 
It's great to have you here. Ian is a uh, financial planner, also insurance and funds licensed, uh, located in the Calgary area. And you're about, uh, what, five or six years in the business now, Ian? That's correct. Perfect. And I know I had the pleasure of meeting you relatively early in your uh, time in the business. And I know right from your starting days in this business, you had a heavy focus on uh, client debt. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about why you chose that focus or, or how you ended up uh, taking that on. That's a very good question. Uh, when I arrived in the province, um, I originally had a practice down in Nova Scotia. I arrived in Alberta in April of 2015. Uh, the job scene in this province was dismal. Uh, if you recall, uh, there's about 100,000 jobs that were shed in the Calgary area. Uh, needless to say, blood was everywhere. Uh, people needed help. Uh, this was a reality that you could not escape and um, it was really on the minds of many of the clients that we met. Uh, number two, I believe it was a distinction um, that we had to introduce into our business that would actually separate us from most advisors. Of course, I'm in a kind of kill what you eat kind of business. Uh, it's a service that many advisors don't make any money on, uh, but it certainly demonstrates care for the client. And lastly, um, Further, my second point, it permitted a deep dive on other areas that, again, don't necessarily make money, but are important if you want to perform holistic financial planning on clients, such as cash flow, which I would add a subsection here, organization of personal banking uh, to prevent leakage uh, and to automate debt reduction pro process, and ultimately, of course, behavioral finance, which is an absolutely fascinating area in the practice. I have quite a few follow-on questions from that. Uh, there's, uh, there's a lot of uh, meat in that answer, Ian. I guess the first thing I'm going to ask you is concerning that raft of job losses in Calgary in 2015 or thereabouts. And you find that it's mostly um, lifestyle spending that people had where they had committed to spend or they were just used to spending this much money. And then when they had either a job loss or and they had a, a reduction in their uh, employment or even self-employment income, that they weren't as slow to, to, to reduce their spending? Or was there some other underlying factor there? Was it you know, mortgages people were stuck with? Or what did you find were the, uh, the underlying causes of, of people ending up? Uh, or was it just that they had always carried that much debt and had cash flow to support it? That's a very good question. <clears throat> uh, coming from a poor part, economically speaking, of our country into a very wealthy part of our country. Uh, I was, <laughs> I don't have else to say this, shocked uh, at the overspending, uh, the lifestyle, of course. There was no debt, no, sorry, no doubt about that. Uh, lifestyle expenses were just uh, beyond, beyond their means, but always this sort of optimism that things will recover sooner, quickly, uh, but not realizing uh, that the economic recession would, would go on for so long. So. It was interesting, but lifestyle, definitely, I would lean there for sure. Okay, we hear Ian talk about having conversations with his clients where the Alberta economy, and specifically Calgary, and Calgary has suffered quite a bit, lots of knowledge jobs, uh, head office jobs were lost in the oil and gas uh, price collapse and all that went along with that. Ian talks about recovery here, and yes, there is the prospect of some recovery. I don't want to get into uh, the crystal ball here. I think regardless, this is a conversation that everybody across the country uh, should be having with their clients, that if you can get somebody to just exercise discretion early rather than spending everything you make, if you can build that gap between what you spend and what you make and the positive gap. You don't want to be overspending. You want to be spending less than what you make. I think a, a healthy reminder here is if you can get your client to put themselves in the shoes of somebody who might have been in Calgary in 2011 or 2012 and kind of assume that everything would always continue working the way that it had and built up spending habits that way versus if you can get somebody to recognize that sometimes your income is not going to continue at the level it's always been at. And it doesn't have to be a big picture economic collapse. 
You look at a client who loses their job when they're 52 or 53, or a client who has their employer go out of business or whatever it is. There's a whole bunch of stuff that can happen here. And the more you have yourself insulated where your expenses are less than your income, the better it is. So if you can use this experience, if you can talk about the client in Calgary, or if you can find maybe something a little closer to home, it's useful. And of course, it's a hard balance to strike where we don't necessarily want to tell people they can't spend their money or they can't have fun with their money or whatever. You've heard me talk about this before, this idea that the financial advisor doesn't have to be the fun police. But at the same time, if anybody thinks that they're completely insulated from the risk of losing their income or uh, seeing a significant drop in their income, or even sometimes having unforeseen expenses, such as, uh, let's say, a child with an illness or a parent who needs uh, long-term care or some other health concern like that, that person would be fooling themselves. Those risks are always there. And I think in stories like this, if we can pull that and use that when we're talking with our clients, that's a very useful thing to be able to bring to the table. Now, you mentioned that you find you're able to engage in a holistic financial plan by exploring cash flow, for example. Can you give some examples of some of the things that show up when you're working through cash flow issues with a client that maybe an advisor wouldn't get to see if they didn't ask those uh, cash flow questions or dig in on that cash flow a little bit? This is interesting. Um, I think around what's been most surprising to me on that deep dive on cash flow is the value that clients place on children, uh, namely activities. Um, this was an absolute shocker to me personally and professionally, uh, where some people um, are enrolling children in professional skiing, um, $30,000 to $40,000 a year. Uh, we have also have professional gymnasts, parents really trying to drive children to, and I'm saying that word uh, intentionally, um, you know, uh, to excel, be the best they possibly can, and there's just no negotiable wiggle room here. It's almost like an elephant in the room that you have to deal with. Um, what was another one? Uh, another one was amazing where um, it was <laughs> cash flow and children activity around a baby grand piano worth seventy dollars to $80,000, and this, this cash flow item had to be dealt with. There was this like, um, this is discretionary, maybe we should be reconsidering. It was like a non-negotiable. So children's activities basically, you know, um, really give you an insight into their values, uh, where they want things to go. And I believe it's almost a litmus test on you, the advisor. You know, will you accommodate that or are you going to simply kind of revert to a kind of a fun police, you know, read the riot act and so forth. So that's been definitely revelatory for me. Can we talk about the baby grand piano a little bit, Ian? That sounds like, uh, I, I mean, did the clients end up purchasing it? Did you have any say in it was something they'd already bought by the time you knew them. I don't know how much you can uh, answer that, but I'm, I'm curious about this. Well, somewhat, it was uh, funds that have been allocated. It was like more like, um, you know, utilizing emergency funds, dipping into that area uh, to fund this children's activities. Um, I, I think the only thing I could probably do to mitigate that situation was to say, listen, are we looking at replenishing that emergency fund should uh, the inevitable happen? You know, it was a person in the oil and gas sector you know, to me, it's like that is very risk averse, or, or sorry, risk heavy. And uh, I just, you know, gently have to express that concern to are we going to, you know, re-engage in the financial planning principles that are going to steady your situation should the inevitable occur. So I get some concession on that one. <laughs> it's interesting. So. That is an interesting one. Now, uh, do you think that sometimes parents engage in that level of spending because they do have maybe, and I'm not talking about like the one day my kid's going to be in the NHL. I don't think it goes quite that far, although sometimes you see that. But what I'm thinking about more so here is uh, I know a few folks who's, and especially with girls I find this, have excelled at athletics and then gone on to um, some of the more prestigious American schools. Um, do you think that that's something that goes into people's thinking a little bit? I'm thinking like with gymnastics in particular, 
So getting back to that client, that's a very good question. So they're spending 30000 annual on gymnastics programs, and they are definitely looking at U.S. scholarships. There is no doubt. Yes. I mean, I would, I would hardly agree with that comment. But yeah, there is just something about education. It's almost like they're foregoing uh, existing savings via RESP route, for example, and just hopefully, you know, they're just really, in my most <laughs> rolling dice, um, to hopefully fetch or attract that, that, that scholarship to, to make up for the years of um, non-RSP contributions, if I could say it that way. Now, the, the trade-off I find there is that I find it's actually pretty rare, even for really high-performing athletes, to end up on a scholarship that covers everything. I don't, are, do you think that your, your clients who are parents typically know uh, what the real cost of having a child go to school in the United States is? Some do, some don't. It depends, really, uh, on how far they are along in that gymnastics or that uh, sports endeavor. You know, do they feel they're going to make it? I do believe at some point there's something that switches uh, within a parent. I can't say it's every time, but they just they just believe they they just elevate their children to a, a certain role, and they believe they can do it. And you would be surprised at that belief system what it does uh, to existing cash flow. Uh, to commitment levels by way of debt, what they're willing to sustain and carry as a result of this belief system, it's amazing to me. And this is where that, that whole notion of um, the cash flow revealing the behavioral psychology of the client, it's, it's fascinating. That's probably one of the most interesting parts of the job, honestly. Okay, it's not the first time on this podcast we've talked about the cost of hockey, for example. Uh, we heard uh, Craig talk about that back in season one. And here Ian brings it up again, and I don't want to just pick on hockey. There are numerous activities that carry this very high cost. It's a dance we heard here. It could be certain types of music. It could be equestrian. Equestrian is one that I have a couple friends who have kids doing, and this is quite an expensive hobby or pursuit, however you want to look at it. I'm going to post a link to an article that deals with the cost of AAA hockey, and quite informative, actually. It's good, not really uh, technical data, more anecdotal, but it goes through some of the concerns associated with this. Now, I don't know how you manage this from an advisor perspective. I don't know how much you can sort of clamp down on this. I sure don't want to be the one who tells parents that they're being foolish in helping their child to pursue their dreams. That's not a position you can be in, I think, as an advisor. At the same time, there has to be a balance struck where we help parents to recognize the cost of spending. And it might simply be that we recognize the trade-offs. So fine, spend that thirty dollars or $40,000 a year having your child play midget AAA hockey or whatever, but that means that something else has to go. That might mean fewer family vacations, or that might mean that mom and dad are willing to work a few more years to eventually be able to retire. There's got to be some trade-off there somewhere. You can't do everything. And this is where we go back to Paula Pound. And Paula, of course, uh, with the quote, you can afford anything, you just can't afford everything. Okay, just going back to the uh, the client where you mentioned about getting some concessions, I'm, I'm curious to know what that looks like. Did the client uh, slow down spending a little bit or did they uh, change their spending habits somewhere else or what did that actually look like? And then have you found that that's been successful with other clients? So what we found, was, well, the concession was basically uh, to begin a monthly strategy of replenishing uh, what otherwise would have been uh, serving as uh, an emergency account. And so to me, to commit to that means that they're at least buying into the principle of holistic financial planning. Uh, they understand the importance of this, but we just could not shake past um, that one big expenditure item. It was a non-negotiable. So the fact that they began a monthly contribution, it was in my mind a commitment of some sorts, whether it be small or big. To me, it's not about jolting the system and robbing Peter to pay Paul, it's we're moving the needle. So we can affect behavioral change by just inching forward in some way, shape or form. 
by way of a small commitment, I feel uh, I will have accomplished that. And that's, that strategy has proved very useful. We move the needle with clients, and then we get them accustomed to saving in small dribs and drabs, and then we dial up as they feel confident uh, with the process. Yeah, perfect. I think that's a nice follow-on to my next question, which is, because you've been at this now for five or six years, you would have some clients now where you started down this process quite a while ago. And I'm curious to know, out of the clients you had maybe in your first couple of years in the business where there was a debt focus, uh, how many of those clients are you still working with? And maybe with how many of them have you had what, what you would consider to be uh, successful outcomes? Uh, we have a very high success rate on that. Uh, it's incredible. Again, it's like, People come to you uh, with baggage, with shame, with like this is an area that's very close to the heart. I have not lived within my means. I'm struggling. I'm drowning. And to have them lay that card down on the table is a very gentle process. So that involves a high degree of trust and uh, a very clear focus on outcome. And when you can marry those two with a client, Jason, they're very sticky. And so we do not have clients that come in, kick our tires and leave because it's a very emotional process that they engage in. And once we can demonstrate that we're trustworthy and we give them um, tangible tools to work with, uh, they stay with us. So we, we, we garner quite a bit of clients that way. And maybe it's a chicken or the egg question, but you say that clients have to have some degree of acknowledgement that there's a problem. And Correct. I'm wondering... Is it a, is there something you can do to create that acknowledgement or is it that they already know they have a problem and that's why they're walking in the door? I think it's mostly hidden uh, because they don't really understand what financial planners do. Um, so when I go through our introductory session, you know, we outline our services basically um, and debt reduction comes to the forefront. I make it a specific point during our process. This is an area that we uh, are proud of, that we help many clients, and it's amazing when you reach that point, there's a, just a change in the demeanor of the client, and you can tell it's on their heart and mind, and usually they're forthcoming vocally, or verbal, I should say, and then we begin down that process. We'll get to that in our planning. And it's almost like a relief. It's just that demonstrating value, this topic comes up, it's on their mind, it gives them an outlet, uh, via non-verbally or verbally, it's very evident in the meeting, and then we, of course, make sure that's addressed and in further planning. You'll note here that Ian mentions that he makes a specific point of talking about debt reduction. This is where we get into client expectations versus advisor communications. And this is a reasonably well-documented problem I'll post up a link that deals with this same question on the charity side. There's evidence that shows that while advisors perceive that they have discussed a particular issue, clients will often perceive that the advisor has not discussed that issue at all. So it's not uncommon to see something like advisors have talked about this in 75% of client meetings, but only 15% of that advisors clients perceive that that discussion has been there and i would suggest this would be very typical with debt repayment or debt management strategies like ian's referring to here and i think that's where you have to make sure that you aren't just glossing over a question it'd be one thing to say ah, client you want to talk about your debt okay that's fine it's a completely different thing to say client when I'm in a typical engagement, I spend a lot of time working on debt reduction and debt management strategies, and I've had this type of client in the past who's been in this position, and we've been able to help them out in this manner, and really to focus in on that, maybe to show a couple of tools or to discuss those success stories in a little more detail, and really that's going to make sure that the client has the opportunity to, in their head, go through this discussion and say, you know what, actually I am comfortable talking to this person sitting across from me about this issue. And Ian points out as well that a lot of people don't really know what financial planning is. I would suggest that if people were asked, they would largely say that financial planning is about delivering investment advice. 
And I don't want to knock delivering investment advice. We've had a couple of episodes discussing that very thing. But the financial planner has to be able to explain their overall value proposition. This goes back to our discussion earlier about specialization. Part of Ian's value proposition is this discussion around debt and all that goes with that. And by making sure that he explains, well, that value proposition, great, this shows up in his discussions with his clients. He might put a lesser focus on investment planning. His clients might feel like Ian doesn't do a lot of work on the investment planning side. I don't know. I don't know what those conversations look like, but I would suggest that if you're going to specialize, then there's going to be certain elements of your practice that are going to rise to the front and some things that'll take a back seat where the client might not feel like those were as important. And that might be what happens with the charitable discussion that I mentioned a couple minutes ago. I know you said you have a, a large number of success stories. Um, are there any amongst those that stand out? Anything where you say that's somebody that I made a huge difference in and they really are substantially better off for the work that we've done together? Yes. Um, this client is very, very interesting. Um, a TELUS employee comes into the office, um, dejected. Um, obviously, there's a sense of uh, anxiety, uh, not knowing what to do, almost like just overwhelmed, I guess, was, was the, um, the air in the room. And through our process, we just began to break things down. Of course, the debt reduction um, topic came up, and they really took to that. And so we discovered that for this client, this was consumer debt. Uh, we're not talking about mortgage or vehicles, but consumer debt north of $60,000, for example, we simply engaged the process where we would lay out the budget worksheet, get a listing of all the debts, uh, and using a tool called undebt.it, it is a web-based tool, it's free, uh, we worked out a one-page executive level summary using what, I, well, what is known as the debt snowball method. So once we had the data inputted into the program, we were able to crystallize the goal for the client. And the goal really solves two key issues that every client wants to know. Number one, when is the month and the year I will be out of debt? And this is the language we find they all gravitate to, month and year, because then they can do the calculation. Secondly, what to pay, how much, and when? And if I could add a third one, I said two points, but a third one, if we could automate that process as much as possible uh, using online banking and so forth. And to that end, we actually give recommendations on how to actually structure personal banking to meet those ends. So the client came with the pre preconceived notion <clears throat> to pay the highest interest first. And we challenged that assumption. So we challenged them with working on the smallest debt first to invigorate the process, reinforce positive behavior, and build momentum. This is key, building momentum. So if they see debts being knocked down, it invigorates the process. We've seen this. So we demonstrated to the client that they would be debt-free in approximately 28 months. We were then able to inject variables to punch the date shortening um, uh, in the time it would, be, uh, it would take to be debt-free. For example, uh, we proposed that they were to increase debt servicing by, say, $700 a month. It would shave off six months from being debt-free. And Jason, I can't explain this to you, but this is the language they love. It's clear, it's plain English, it's very tangible to them. So the client was encouraged to work overtime or take us on a second job. We further demonstrate the power of being debt-free by demonstrating um, allocating a portion of the debt servicing dollars to a down payment on their first home. And then we're able to demonstrate how quickly they could get into a home. That was riveting to them. So in the end, the client actually took on two part-time jobs and was completely debt-free in 18 months. They now own their home as of four months ago and are only working one job. Needless to say, Jay, we received a glowing Facebook review and many referrals since. That's a beautiful story. That does sound like a big win and sounds like that person is really well positioned for a good financial future. Lots of good stuff here. Ian talks about 
having wins on the uh, debt repayment side. He talks about particular tool, undebt.it. I'm a big fan of this. I've started using this quite a bit myself and I've referred lots of people to it. It operates on a freemium model. You can access really everything you need for free with undebt.it and it builds a really solid platform. Now, we hear some discussion around either the snowball method or the avalanche method of debt repayment. I don't think Ian actually uses the term avalanche here, but he certainly uses the term snowball. It's a concept that shows up a little bit in behavioral finance, this question of which debt is it better to pay off first? And just to use a very simple comparison, let's say you had a client who has a $1,000 credit card with a 20% interest rate and another credit card, let's say a $2,000 credit card with a 30% interest rate. Well, the mathematical temptation here would be to pay off the $2,000 credit card with the 30% interest rate first, because we know that that's going to create more cash flow. It's going to put more money into the client's pocket. The problem is that at least for about 70 to 75% of the population, that's actually not the method that's most likely to result in success. The snowball method of debt repayment, where we actually pay off the smaller debt first so that we can record a win, so that the client actually sees meaningful progress, something that is really easy to see, that's actually what works for more people. Now, some people might respond well to the avalanche method, that is to pay off the more expensive debt first. But I would suggest that the person who responds well to that probably has a better grip on math in the first place and was less likely to get themselves into a position where this is even a concern. So the person who finds themselves in this struggle probably finds themselves there because they're maybe lacking a little bit on the financial literacy or the numeracy side. And that's where we're more concerned about a behavioral win, tick in a box, success that can be celebrated than we are about actually the balance sheet or the numbers on the cash flow statement. Yes, we still have to pay attention to all of that stuff, but that really would be the advisor in the background while the client works through what's going to result in the greatest success for them. be able to get your continuing education credits by going to bccquiz.online. That's BCC as in Business Career College, bccquiz.online. And there's a little quiz you'll do there, just a few questions. And if you're already a subscriber, then it will issue you a certificate. If you're not already a subscriber, then you'll be able to sign up there and you'll be able to get your continuing education credits that way. Now, the uh, corollary to that, I guess, anybody you've worked with where you thought, I should be able to help this person, I've put the right tools in front of them, and they just did not respond well, or they weren't able to implement, or maybe something else went wrong that was unexpected? I would have to say yes to that. It was actually my largest consumer debt proposal. Uh, I shouldn't say consumer proposal, but my proposal I made regarding my largest uh, consumer debt case, uh, which was 175000 It was a small business owner. Um, I believe it was more at play than just um, me presenting the facts. Um, his spouse really uh, had to carry him to the table. He was limping, dejected. Uh, emotionally in on himself, uh, needless to say, very depressed. We went through a couple of sessions. The wife was light at the end of the tunnel, very invigorated. Uh, she could see it. However, it involved change. And I, I don't think this person had the emotional acumen or resources to move the needle. And so it languished. So you, get, you, get, you do get people like that. But that was a tough one um, to do. But the wife saw it, but he didn't. And I think he'd already been bruised and knuckled pretty good um, and could not recover. So, I'm curious, in that case, uh, was it primarily the use of credit cards to float the business? Was that what was causing that large amount of consumer debt? 
that, uh, lines of credits, personal loans from friends to keep the business afloat, and so forth, many things. But obviously, credit cards are the the guilty, the um, the top culprit, I guess, in all consumer debt, definitely. Okay, we hear Ian in this discussion mention a couple of interesting points. He talks about a client who's not ready for change. And there is a whole field of change management here. And I'm not sure what Ian might have done beyond this, but one of the things that might be recommended here, and there's an excellent book by uh, Brad Klontz and a couple of others called Facilitating Financial Therapy. And in that book, Brad talks about sending clients to professional therapists. And he mentions in there that there should be some limit to what the financial planner or financial advisor can do or the types of discussions that the financial advisor or financial therapist should be comfortable with, sorry, financial advisor or financial planner should be comfortable with. And at some point where you have a client where change is needed, but the client, as uh, Ian indicated, even Ian even used the word here depressed, and I'm not sure that that was intentional, but it might be better to send that client over for therapy versus dealing with their financial issues first. Now, Moira Summers, whom you've heard me talk about before on this podcast, makes the good point in her book that when she was learning psychotherapy, that money came up, if I recall correctly, once in her entire education. And that's where the financial planner might work with the therapist a little bit and Of course, respecting client confidentiality is going to be key here, but there might be some back and forth there, or there might be some discussion with the client about what the therapist has discussed, because the financial advisor, financial planner is going to have some money expertise that will be helpful in these discussions. But that concept of being ready to make a change, that's not an easy thing. That's something that the financial planner does have to potentially get the client to somebody else to deal with. And if you're able to do this on your own, hey, good for you. However, I'm sure that we've all had the experience where you've got a client sitting across from you, you know that they need to make a change, and you're simply not able to get the client to put the wheels in motion to do this. Have you had clients who came to you with payday loans outstanding or having been prior users of payday loans? No, we don't work in that market. <laughs> I'm actually surprised at this, Ian. I've, uh, the reason I mention it is because I had some dealings with somebody in another province recently where he was a principal in a payday lending company, a payday lending business. And he said, as much as you're kind of accustomed to thinking about you know, payday lenders as operating in that, you know, three, $300,000 loan market for primarily lower income folks, he actually said that his number one source of revenue was from physicians using payday loans. And the reason because they, um, they have this sort of awkward billing cycle, depending on the type of uh, medical practice they run. And they're often otherwise uh, strapped for credit, they've used all their credit elsewhere. And I mean, it's ridiculously easy for a physician to get credit. I know one of the big banks today lends to physicians uh, $2 million with no collateral at a rate less than prime. You know, Jace, this is interesting. Like, I think you're really touching on another topic. And I, I get this quite a bit when it comes to cash flow, specifically business owners uh, mitigating cash flow. They just, it seems like they're on their own. Um, who does this? Who offers this professionally in the financial community? Um, is it an, is it the accountant? Is it the financial planner? Uh, is it the is it the banker? It just it just seems to be such a gray area, and advice is plentiful, I guess. Internet it seems to be a challenge how to operate a business cash flow wise properly. It is a good topic. I've seen a few accountants who do it, but the vast majority certainly don't. Maybe another line of business there somewhere. just wanted to flag for a second here. It's curious how in our last episode, we talked to Ray 
where we really set out to discuss business planning. And Ray had a nearly identical question to what Ian has here. And that question, of course, is who helps a business owner with their cash flow or cash management issues? I'd be interested to hear from listeners out there where you've had success with outside professionals, whether it's business consultants or accountants or otherwise who have been able to come in and help a client with uh, business cash flow issues. I know in my experience at Business Career College, I've had this occasionally. I know that at one point we explored a relationship with a consultant from the Business Development Bank of Canada who was potentially going to help with some issues like cash flow management. But honestly, the challenge was the price of that consultant was too high and we just couldn't afford that person at the time. Uh, It's kind of an ironic thing where you're trying to get your cash flow reined in. There's an expense associated with getting that cash flow sorted out and you can't afford to pay that expense. Now we were able to weather those issues and uh, maybe today we'd be in a better position to employ a consultant like that, but it's just not something that's sort of a self-solving problem and maybe even the way that uh, you would approach that to go pay a consultant to be involved in something like that might contribute to the problem. Have you had clients who came to you and you said, all right, I, I just can't see an easy way out of this, like the, you know, the, the solution you talked about before, where you're able to figure out exactly when that's repaid. But have you had situations where there was no recourse other than either a bankruptcy or a consumer proposal? Uh, no, Jason, I have not. No, people are coming. We're just, it's usually just behavioral issues. Um, there's nothing that has been presented that I've seen that we could not, working together, um, shepherd them out of that scenario that they're in, walking together. No, uh, that's a pretty dismal situation. And I don't know if they would engage a planner at that point. Uh, more they'd be talking to a bank and looking at consolidation or bankruptcy or whatnot, but no. That's good. You know, if you're able to avoid those, and when you see somebody who's well into that five figures, you know, you talked about north of $60,000 and, yep. and you're yep. able to avoid a consumer proposal or bankruptcy yep. there. That's a big win. That's a win both uh, for long-term financial future, but also I was just from a behavioral perspective because that person. Absolutely. Usually people are engaging me to be preventative or have alternate ideas because we know that bankruptcy consumer proposals are floating in their mind because they don't, they don't know any different, Jason, honestly. And so they're looking for alternatives. And as a planner, we have them, and we should have them. And we do want to affect behavior. And I, I'm, I don't know how to say this, but uh, there's a tremendous sense of um, professional well-being by contributing to society in this way. We want to save people from giving up or relinquishing financial responsibility. We want, we want them engaged. We want them uh, moving forward, taking the reins, ownership. And it's, it's very rewarding to see them make that turn of heart, turn out change of mind. It's amazing. Now, correct me if I'm wrong here, but early days when you were doing this, Ian, you would uh, do everything in Excel sort of longhand. Do I have that right? Uh, I don't know, Jason. We always use that that web tool that I provided you there earlier. Uh, It spits out a report into Excel, and then we we go out that way. That must be it. I was thinking about – so I I will put a link to undebt.it. I've got that right? That's right. That's correct. I'll put a link to that in today's notes. That's, uh, That's really helpful. I hope that other folks can get some value out of that as well. With your clients, is it normal that you pull their uh, credit report? Is it something that you find some utility in having a look at? You know, that's a good question. That depends on their age. So if I have uh, couples in their, I would say their young 30s uh, to mid-30s, we use a, an application called uh, Credit Karma. It's an iPhone app. It's uh, free of charge. And we use that as a benchmark to gauge where they are. And if they meet again, we just fire it back up and run the comparison. It's that simple. I do the same with my financial planning clients. They all walk out with either a Credit Karma account or a BorrowWell account. Yeah, we do, but we need we need somehow to measure baseline uh, that's easy, accessible, and to demonstrate to them the plan's working, and that is very powerful. Have you used? uh, Have you actually had clients, or has has there been situations when it's been appropriate to uh, get people to do the paid account on Equifax or TransUnion? Had one client do that, um, but as, as a rule of thumb, no. It's the credit card. It's the, it's the quick, a quick pinch. We just need to know where you are. And so to go down that route, you know, it's more 
time consuming uh, and there's a cost involved. So usually people in debt, you don't want to layer on any additional expense. If you can avoid that, it's a good thing. Yeah, I agree with that. I, I try to avoid uh, those two resources as well. Okay, Ian gets into credit karma here, a little discussion around credit karma. And this is something that I think is worth talking about is credit scores in general. It's a hard concept to avoid when you're talking about debt. Your credit scores, first off, are actually calculated by Equifax or TransUnion based on proprietary models. And those proprietary models, unfortunately, can be a little bit hard to unpack. Now, the other thing is that even Equifax and TransUnion are not the end-all and be-all here. The granddaddy of credit scoring is an American entity, and both TransUnion and Equifax, of course, are American. But Fair Isaac Corporation in the United States has a score called Ultra FICO, which is apparently coming to Canada in 2020. We'll see. But what makes this even more complicated is that plenty of financial institutions might not even actually use TransUnion or Equifax. They might use their own proprietary or internal scoring methods. When you look at then your TransUnion or Equifax score, you have to take it with a bit of a grain of salt. And then the other issue is that there are many sort of subscores within Equifax or TransUnion. So I might create an account, and this costs now about 20 bucks a month. I might create an account at either one of those places and subscribe to my credit report. And then I get to see my score and I get to see a lot of details that go into the building of that score. But that might not be the number that an actual lender gets when they go to TransUnion or Equifax to determine whether or not it's good to lend money to me. So those numbers can be a little bit wonky. And I've seen this with my own financial planning clients where their Equifax score and TransUnion score might be significantly different from one another. I've seen it as well where an individual pulls their own Equifax score and they think it's good and healthy and so forth. And then they go to the bank to take out a mortgage and they end up 50 or 100 points different from what they expected that credit score to show. That being said, I still like the credit score, and I think this is what Ian is referring to here as well, as a sort of baseline figure for your financial health. If I've got a client who right now is at a 620 or 630 credit score, and we do some work together, and we set a goal to a year from now have a 750 credit score, for example, well, that's probably an achievable goal, and that gives a metric that we can work towards. It actually allows us to measure progress. It can otherwise be very difficult to measure progress. And of course, people like that, that outside scoring, it gives a little bit of validity to the work you're doing. Now, I mentioned that there's a cost to this, and Ian covered this, so I'm not a fan of spending 20 bucks a month on Equifax or TransUnion. You can use Credit Karma or Borowell in the interview here, and Credit Karma gives you access to your TransUnion credit score. Borowell gives you access to your Equifax credit score. They just give the score and a little bit of a summary. They don't give you the same level of detail you get if you pay the 20 bucks a month, but it is honestly enough. It's enough to kind of figure out what's happening and to be able to set that baseline. I like both of those resources. You have to be a little bit cautious here, depending on what kind of compliance environment you're in. I know some compliance departments would take issue with sending a client to use some third-party software. So make sure you're not violating some rules here. But if you have a client who does want to see their credit score, oh, I should mention too, some of the banks and credit unions have this as a free service with their online tools as well. So you don't even necessarily have to set up an account at Equifax or TransUnion. You might find there are sufficient tools available at whatever place that client banks at. Now, you talked earlier about getting this client uh, who had come to you 
maybe with the avalanche strategy, pay off the highest debt first, and you sort of move that person over to uh, the snowball strategy, which um, a lot of academic research does support that the snowball, the you know, smallest debt first and, and build up that momentum that way is the, is the superior strategy. I'm wondering, Ian, if you've had other tools, you said you have a sort of robust suite of tools. What else have you put in front of clients that actually helps them take that first step or helps them keep taking steps? Other than those tools, um, we just we demonstrate how to organize um, personal banking from a cash flow perspective. I don't know if we have time to get into that, Jay, but that is a that's a tool we use. It's actually demonstrated. It's illustrated in front of them. You know, it usually works best with two couples. That's that's the kind of the scenario that I would use it in. Um, on how to organize personal banking, but other than those tools, Credit Karma, the Undebted, and um, this illustration regarding personal banking, uh, that's usually sufficient to uh, begin moving clients in the right direction. Yeah, I can see the value of putting that date, like that debt-free date, in front of a client. That sounds brilliant. That's you know, and very yep. executable. That's that's nice, clean. Yeah. Well, to me, it's like say if someone comes to you, look, I'm going to I'm going to sell my third vehicle. I don't need, and they give me an amount. We put the amount in. It's called an additional payment. And it's interesting. It's just very, very responsive. We just see how many months it knocks off your debt-free date, and that's the kind of language that they like, so they know that. Yeah, perfect. And I know you have a fairly active uh, social media presence. I think mostly Facebook. You mentioned that earlier. Um, can you talk a little bit about how that has helped with your business or how that helps with your uh, client interactions? It helps quite a bit, actually. So when uh, you have finished with a client and they've appreciated the value of, their, of your services, we always ask for a Facebook review. They provide them. Those that are willing, provide them. Um, so that review list gets compiled by way of a link, a URL. We can link directly to the review section of our Facebook page. Then when we're prospecting or we're going to meet clients, say over a coffee for an introductory meeting, you know, we usually follow up with a, you know, uh, an email reminder for the, for the appointment and we always encourage them to look at our Facebook reviews. So that in turn, um, people like to check you out before they actually meet you. I think the word is called creeping. And uh, you get creeped quite a bit in this business, as you can well imagine. And we find uh, the use of a review section on our Facebook page has been tremendously helpful. And just moving clients along and saying, you know what, this, is a, this looks like a positive experience. It's probably worth their while to meet this individual. Okay, you hear Ian talk about using Facebook here. And it doesn't necessarily have to be Facebook, but... I do see more and more firms today who are using, whether it's Google reviews or Facebook or maybe even Yelp to assemble reviews and have that as a place their clients or prospective clients can go to, as Ian says, creep them to check them out a little bit. I like this. I think people, whether this is healthy or not, I think people attach a little bit more credence to those reviews when they show up. You, you kind of borrow Facebook's credibility or borrow Google's credibility or whatever it is, and you create that third party versus I think sometimes when people have reviews posted on their website, on their own website, that can look a little bit more cultivated. Obviously, you're not going to post negative reviews on your website, so you don't have the client maybe give that as much credence. So not for everybody again, but maybe something to think about in terms of gathering that positive information. Do you find that that sometimes also leads the client to sort of, I don't know if inadvertently is the right word, but to inadvertently refer other people in their Facebook network? Uh, if they like us, that actually happens. Um, we're not expecting that. To me, it's about the review and giving those reviews to a potential um, client. That, to me, is the value of it all. Uh, of course, we post articles from time to time just to communicate with individuals that we are active and that we are still alive and in the business. And we just keep it very focused on that one uh, one task, one one goal. All right, that's a lot of great stuff, Ian. I, I think this is a topic, like you said earlier, that does not get enough attention. And I think a lot of advisors uh, would bring additional value both to their clients and to their own practices by discussing cash flow a little bit more. Is there any uh, last-minute items that you wanted to share here, 
Ian, anything you didn't get a chance to talk about that you think would be important? Uh, I just think it's a, an area that should be mentioned if it's of interest to the client. Um, I like to talk about preventing leakage. Uh, for example, if you were to put a budget worksheet before any client, they would tell you the amount of net income that flows into the household. They would then proceed to list all their expenses. And then they had the surplus at the end of the month. And as you and I both know, that's never the case. And so that's an area like, do we have an opinion around that area of how to prevent that? And we took that to task. And that was, it bugged me personally and professionally not to have an answer for that. And we had to solve it. And it just adds an extra level of value to the clients. They truly feel like they're being listened to, accommodated at the deepest level of their financial development, all areas versus just trying to sell insurance or help them save money. Yeah, that's perfect. Ian, and I appreciate you sharing some uh, concrete strategies and tools there. I know folks will get a lot of value out of that. Thanks so much and uh, enjoy the rest of your day, Ian. Thank you. My pleasure, Jason. Thank you. Okay, lots of great stuff there from Ian. It's a topic we haven't explored much on these podcasts at this point. I do want to take a few minutes to wrap up a few other concepts here. We didn't discuss at all consumer proposals or bankruptcies, which uh, you might have gathered from my line of questioning I had thought would come up. I do want to send you to a really good podcast on this topic, the Debt Free in 30 podcast hosted by Doug Hoyes over at Hoyes Mikolos is excellent. Doug has lots of great discussions around debt and some of the factors that go into accumulating debt and how people manage their debt, some horror stories around debt, lots of Southern Ontario focus here, but still good stuff for those right across the country in terms of just learning more about how a bankruptcy trustee, which is what Doug is, views this. And we can talk a little bit about what happens when somebody has an insurmountable debt load. If you've got that client where all the tools Ian talked about are simply not going to work out, that's where the client might be better off to look at a consumer proposal or a bankruptcy. A consumer proposal used to be viewed as kind of a lighter version of bankruptcy. I would suggest today they really, from a prospective lenders perspective if they look at a history where there's a consumer proposal there or a history where there's a bankruptcy there they're not going to see them as that much different they do get to be different in their legal outcomes there are certain folks who would be barred from working in the business if they've gone through a bankruptcy we see that in this industry if you have a bankruptcy you may not be able to renew an insurance license or an investment funds license or the CFP certification. I don't want to say that's a 100% outright bar, but it can be a bar to certification or licensing. And for that reason, sometimes people in this business who have the choice between a consumer proposal and a bankruptcy will go the consumer proposal route. The difference is the bankruptcy is a little bit more of a quick tearing off of the Band-Aid. Basically, with bankruptcy, you have all of your debts dealt with. You have a period, usually nine months, where you're actually legally bankrupt, and then at the end of that, you're discharged, whereas a consumer proposal tends to drag on a little bit more. There's going to be a two-year period with most consumer proposals where you just live on your absolute basic amount of income and anything beyond that, which we call surplus income, goes to pay your creditors. There's a little bit of uh, variation by province with those, but those are fundamentally true. Now, something else that Ian mentioned here, I was happy to hear this. When he talked about debt management, I find a lot of times we really focus on expenses. He talked also about income. So in his case, he talked about one client who took on a couple of extra part-time jobs in order to fish themselves out of their challenges. And that's an absolutely valid strategy. I think it's worth looking at that top half, the income statement on the cash flow side. And you might look at taking a job, as Ian suggested, or is this person working at a place where they haven't had a raise in a while? Is it maybe time to go back and renegotiate with the boss for a raise? 
Are they somewhat stagnant on the income side? And this might be more long-term thinking, but is it time to upgrade their education? Is there something that they should be doing to protect themselves against potential economic instability? Maybe they're still living in the house their kids grew up in and the kids have moved out. Do they have a basement suite that they could be renting out? Or maybe is downsizing an option? Then we go to the expenses side of the income statement. But certainly, I think that we tend to focus on cutting expenses. And yes, that's sort of the obvious solution. But have we fully explored the available sources of income? We touched on credit scores earlier in the discussion. It would be worthwhile to spend a couple of minutes discussing what goes into your credit score. Credit scores are between 300 and 900. Uh, Zero is also possible. A zero really means no credit score. And 300 is honestly terrible. I've never seen anybody with a credit score even in the 300s. I've seen a few in the low 400s. And those are really people who have very challenging circumstances that are going to take a long time to work their way out of. 900 is the highest you can get. And usually if you see a really good credit score, it's going to be somewhere around 860 or 870. Really, once you're north of about 820, there's not much difference anymore. You've plateaued as far as your effective maximum credit score. And to get to that 820, you really have to babysit that credit score. That's using two revolving sources of credit regularly. So a line of credit and a credit card or two credit cards. It's really line of credit and credit card that's effective at building a credit score. Other things you can do can hurt your credit score, but generally don't help it. So if you miss cell phone payments, that hurts your credit score, but making cell phone payments doesn't help your credit score, as an example, or car loans or your mortgage, which didn't used to show up there at all. Those are the tools you use to build that credit score. Now, calculating the credit score, like I said, it's a proprietary model, but there are five things that go into calculating that credit score. And the biggest one, the most obvious one, and I just mentioned this, is do you actually pay on time? Ian talked in the interview about automating payments. There's actually something I'm a big fan of here to protect your credit score, and that is for any revolving credit facility, so every credit card and line of credit, go into your bank account and set up an automated monthly payment, just a small payment, might be 10 or 50 or $100, just enough that if you have something go wrong where you don't have access to your online banking for a period of time, at least that minimum payment gets made And that will ensure that you've made your payments. And I don't know what the right amount is. That'll vary based on client circumstances. If it's somebody who's just a minimal credit card user, then it's maybe $10. If they're a heavier user of their credit card, it might be $100 or $200 or $500, whatever, to make sure that that minimum payment is made. Now, you don't want to push somebody into an overdraft situation that way. So there has to be some steps made to make sure that the bank account is sufficient to manage that. That's where you don't want to be too aggressive with it, but just aggressive enough to sort of babysit that credit score. And as Ian mentioned, and I'm also a big fan, we want to automate wherever possible. The second biggest consideration will be how much debt are you carrying? And generally, if you're carrying less than half of your available balance on any given debt tool, that's not going to hurt your credit score. But if you repeatedly are carrying more than 50% of your available balance on your revolving credit sources, again, line of credit or credit card, that's what's going to hurt. Next factor will be how much history do you have? Have you been using the same credit cards and lines of credit for a very long time? Or Do you have new credit cards? If you have new credit cards, lenders look at that and say, well, good, this person's using their credit cards, but we don't see a lot of history there. And with a lack of history, 
there's just not enough evidence to build a, a really good credit score. The type of credit, what shows up on your credit report. Again, credit card and line of credit, generally pretty good. If you have payday loans on there, for example, that's going to hurt your credit score. Even if you deal with those payday loans responsibly, your credit score will still suffer for carrying that kind of debt. And then what about shopping for credit? Do you have a lot of recent what we call hard hits against your credit score? Has there been heavy use of your credit? And if there is, if you're constantly shopping for credit, that's going to hurt you a little bit. The number for today's episode is seven. The number for today's episode is seven. Okay, thanks very much for joining us today. Please do join us in a couple weeks again when we'll talk to Brad about Canada Pension Plan. We haven't talked about Canada Pension Plan or retirement questions in a little while. And you'll hear with Brad, we get into some really specific discussion around Canada Pension Plan. Thanks so much. And we'll talk to you again in a couple of weeks. A bunch of people have a hand in producing this podcast. Joseph Tong takes care of our music and editing. Anthony Summers is responsible for tech support. Maria Nguyen takes care of all the CE applications to the various accrediting bodies. Marjorie Lewis takes care of certificates when the machine doesn't do it. Desiree Gretton Hicks and Penny Watt take care of our marketing, making sure that there are folks out there to listen to the podcast. Thanks to all those who help out. Mm-hmm.